Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles. And this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we analyse Russia's latest strikes across Ukraine, discuss the impact of the six Russian balloons shot down over Kyiv, and Francis Dernley talks to Ben Graham-Jones, an election expert specialising in emerging threats to electoral integrity. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. Putin's war in Ukraine has destabilized energy markets the world over. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Thursday, the 16th of February, day 358. And joining me today are Associate Editor Dominic Nichols, Assistant Comment Editor Francis Dernley, and our guest is Ben Graham-Jones. I started by asking Dom for the latest updates from Ukraine. Well, hello, David. Hello, everybody. So another day of airstrikes across Ukraine. Russia launched another wave of air attacks. We've seen this in recent months, but the pause in between each each wave has been getting bigger and bigger. Um, I've had a number of briefs from Western officials who are saying this is because Russia is running out of especially precision-guided munitions, but also uh, the calibre cruise missiles and, and others. But we see this pulse. It's now up to sort of every couple of weeks, this pulse of a sudden sort of blitz of air air attack, trying to overwhelm Ukrainian air defences, still trying to take out the um, critical national infrastructure, the power supply, especially the energy infrastructure of Ukraine. Uh, so last night, and th- well, through the night, 32 missiles were reported to have attacked targets across Ukraine. The uh, Ukraine's Air Force said that they shot down 16 missiles, including in the south of the country, eight caliber cruise missiles that were launched from the Black Sea. Now, there have been reports of fatalities and other injuries from the uh, reportedly 16 missiles that got through. However, it has not had um, a, a huge effect on the the country's energy supplies. There's been no major disruption to electricity. The energy minister, German Galyshenko, he said that Ukraine was meeting consumer demand for the fifth successive day. And the power grid operator, Ukrainago, said it has no need to introduce emergency power outages to conserve supplies. The chief of the company, Volodymyr Kudritsky, he said, quote, today's attack... Now, this is a bit wonkish, sorry, so um, 
Hang on, he didn't say that bit. This is me talking. Just stick with it. I'll try and explain this at the end. But Vladimir Kudritsky said, today's attack will not change our plans to not conduct outages during the day, unquote. Um, so I think that means they're not going to do this. They've been they've been planning power outages in order to conserve what they've got. But the energy minister, Mr. Galashenko, said a certain power reserve has emerged. So it sounds as if they are the, the power that is there is is able to keep the country going to our um, fantastic listeners in Ukraine. Just a, a, a question for me. Is that what you're experiencing? Are you for five successive days now? Have you had uh, power when you when you require? I'd be very interested to to hear that now separately but probably related it was reported the the military administration in kiev reported yesterday that six russian balloons were spotted over the capital and shot down by air defenses there's been a, a lot of balloon chat around the world just lately it seems that um that ukraine is uh, you know wants to get involved as well or russia or whoever's sending these balloons but the thing about these these balloons is the, the ukrainian authorities are saying that they had corner reflectors some of them had sophisticated surveillance devices but but a lot of them just had corner reflectors now what are these these are just very briefly these are small metal shapes um and what they are there designed to do we see them we saw russia put a lot of them on boats around the kirsch bridge after that was hit and they've been used elsewhere these are very crude radar reflectors so a, a radar homing missile so a kind of air defense missile that you'd fire at a jet or at a drone or an incoming missile it 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 puts radar energy out into the sky. That radar energy bounces off metal objects and other other bits and pieces. And that radar return is then picked up by the missile or its controlling station back on the ground. And it shows the missile where to go to intercept the target that it's after. So a stealth aircraft and and things on the ground as well, including including personnel, try and lower their radar cross-section, is the, is the phraseology, but lower the return, the radar return that their body or their vehicle or the aircraft will send back to that missile or to any radar that's looking for it. Now, conversely, these, these, um, these shapes, these uh, corner reflectors, the, the thing a radar loves is, is, is sharp edges and right angles, and it, it loves that, and it will bounce off them quite happily. And so these corner reflectors are designed to entice air defence missiles to, to come at them. And if it's just a balloon, then it not only uh, invites Ukrainian air defence to show where their positions are, uh, but it also obviously wastes ammunition. If you're just sh- shooting down a balloon with a $100,000 missile, that's not a great return of investment. So it looks as if Russia's now using these radar reflectors. As I said, they used them before around the Kirsch Bridge, so anything heading for the for the bridge might be more it might be more attractive to go for these very bright returns. They look like huge aircraft, and of course they're they're just small metal shapes. Um, so it looks like that's what Russia has been employing on these balloons, but but a little bit of confusion about that about whether these balloons were part of this attack overnight. But that's what radar reflectors or corner reflectors are for, is to, is to increase the size in the, in the eyes of the missile, if you like, increase the size of the target that, the, um, um, that is being presented to the air defence missile, which then thinks, ooh, that's a, that's a nice juicy target over there. I'll go for that one. That's bound to be an enormous bomber. And actually it's not. It's just a balloon with a big metal thing dangling off the bottom. And what that might do is allow other weapons to get through. It might overwhelm the air defences or it might allow drones, something with a smaller radar cross-section, for example, to get through. So I don't know if these balloons were used in conjunction with this, uh, with the attack overnight. If so, that is a, that is a development in the, in the tactics we've seen from, from Russia. It's not hugely effective. I mean, this is, this is, this is real sort of shallow end stuff. It's poor man's, poor man's air defence sort of air war using you know, little metal shapes dangling off balloons. But they, they can be effective... 
but there's other ways, other ways of dealing with them. But uh, like I say, that's what happened overnight. Whether they were connected, I'm not sure. But um, no major disruption to electricity supplies. And um, it sounds as if there's very low loss of life, which is, which is of course, it's a good thing. But yeah, obviously not, not good news at all. But um, yeah, another wave of, of airstrikes that have had minimal effect. Tom, can I ask a sort of dumb civilian question? Um, you say that these, these reflectors are sort of give the impression of a large bomber to confuse air defence or to attract them. But wouldn't you see them on a, a radar or you know, a screen or something and they'd just be moving so slowly you could say, oh, that's, well, that's you know, clearly not an aircraft. I mean, ha- um, does that question even make sense? Have I missed something? No, no, that is a, that is a perfectly valid question. I mean, we don't know how these shapes are deployed. They might have been inside the balloon and then, and then dropped down. So suddenly this thing appears on the outskirts of Kiev and, and the, the air defence radars might light up thinking, oh my God, it's a stealth missile, or sorry, a stealth plane, for example, that has just opened its bomb bay doors. And, and once that happens, you know, all the stealth in the world is not going to hide the fact you've got your, your bomb bay doors open because uh, you're about to release a missile. So it might spoof it that way. Um, you're right. I mean, if there's human intervention that says, no, no, that's moving far too slowly, that's not, uh, that's not going to be, um, that, that's, that's just a, a, de- a decoy. I mean, yes, a valid, a valid concern. But, you know, fair play to you if you're the guy that says, don't bother firing on that thing. That's definitely not a slow moving drone or a helicopter. It's absolutely a balloon with a small child's toy dangling underneath it. So you are right. But, you know, would, would you take the risk, especially if you're I, you know, I've said it's a waste of a hundred thousand dollar missile. Yeah, not not entirely flippant, of course. But some of the other uh, capabilities that Ukraine have here for for destroying air um, aircraft is the Gepard, for example, and others like it. But the German Gepard self-propelled um, anti-aircraft gun. It, it's old. It's cold Cold War technology. But it, I mean, it works. It just it's got twin thirty-five mil barrels on either side and just lobs a load of lead in the air and and sh- has been brilliant at shooting down the uh, Shahid one three six drones. So much so that Germany on Tuesday, uh, Boris Pistorius, the German defence minister announced that Germany was reopening the production lines for ammunition for Gepard. I mean, they're, they're long since out of date, so they've, they've stopped the production line, but they are so effective at shooting down drones and and some slow-moving missiles that they've reopened the production lines. So that might be a, an effective way of having to go at, at something like this. So you're right. If you see something slow-moving and you think it is a balloon, then why waste a very, uh, a very high-end anti-air missile? You might, if you've got the assets nearby, you might say, hey, Gepard unit number four, have a look over there. We th- we think this is um, this is something that you need to take on. But of course, all these are these are all the, the the impossible questions that defenders have to wrestle with the whole time. Because of course, there's never enough resource, and it's always in the wrong place, and they're always just replacing the batteries. I mean, these are tough, tough decisions. But yes, your val- your concerns are valid, uh, and it's all down to trying to um, make, in many cases, the le- the least bad make the least bad decision when it comes to where you put your resources. Well, thank you very much for that, Dom Nichols. Francis, can I come to you? There's been quite a few updates uh, in politics and diplomacy. Would you talk us through them? Well, thanks, David, and welcome back, everybody. Yes, staying on the military theme, I want to start with what may sound at first like a rather parochial story here from Britain, which is that the British Defence Secretary, Ben Wallace, has insisted that there is still time to do a deal with the Treasury to secure more defence spending in the forthcoming budget, despite that being an uphill battle. And it comes all in the context of a row over defence spending spending between the Treasury and the Ministry of Defence, with Ben Wallace asking for, we understand, around £10 billion more for his department. Now, he said, and I quote directly, between now and the budget, I've got lots of time and lots of meetings with the Chancellor to make sure that we try and come to a deal on it. 
And we understand that they're going to get at least a billion pound more boost. But the the real question is, and the reason I mention it, is it's indicative of conversations that are taking place at high levels across Europe at the moment. And the terms of those debates are about what a modern effective armed forces look like in the face of the Russian threat. If you think back to the opening weeks of the conflict, Ukrainian success seemed to suggest that advanced high-tech weaponry and a nimbleness in strategy and deployment was enough to defeat Russia. It It also vindicated the British military consensus that we should be investing in cyber and in supporting allies like Ukraine rather than in heavy armor and weapons. And I think that was a philosophy adopted by central other key Western powers as well. But now we're facing, of course, a a remobilized Russia. And there are some that are saying that what really matters is sheer weight and force of arms. They argue that the true game changers in this war have been the heavier, punchier weapons provided by the Americans, such as the HIMARS. And it's not enough to invest in small amounts of high tech weaponry. The West needs to invest essentially in the bread and butter of an effective fighting force. And they also argue that in the annals of war, the the victor in a conventional land war is more often the force that has the most heavy resources it can deploy over an extended period of time whilst keeping stocks replenished. And of course, as things stand, it would appear that the West has not fully brought to bear its manufacturing capacity. We published in our comment pages yesterday, I think, a piece by Jack Watling of Rusi who underlined some of the reasons why this is the case. And it was quite interesting. I'd recommend that listeners uh, do read it. I'll summarise a couple of the key points, which is he said that, of course, in peacetime, and we have had an uh, an extended period of peace now, the incentive to produce is vastly reduced since the state requires only a small number of shells, for instance. And I'll quote directly here. While stockpiling is an option, shells have a shelf life of around 20 years, so it can also be wasteful. Excess capacity requires companies to keep factory facilities idle for decades, which comes with considerable overheads. Western producers cannot justify absorbing such a cost while facing cuts and being driven to compete for international contracts. Thus, munitions factories have been shrunk or closed. NATO must strive to ramp up production before Moscow resolves its own inefficiencies, corruption and inertia of its manufacturing base. But it will take time and the companies now in the West need reassurance from governments that it is worth the investment. And of course, what this emphasises is the importance of this clarity of purpose from the West, because weapons manufacturers need to know that the West is absolutely committed to a long-term war in Ukraine and fighting Russia so that when they are making these decisions, that they know that it's not going to cost them. I know it's very uncomfortable thinking about war in in this very sort of economical and almost profit-driven way, but that's part of the reason we thought this piece was interesting is it talks to the day-to-day questions that have to be resolved. And I think it also explains some of the context that we've seen in the discussions at Ramstein in recent days where they're talking about all the time that the support that Ukraine will need long-term. Now, that is a signal, of course, to President Zelensky. It's a signal to Putin, but it is also a signal to weapons manufacturers in the West to say, look, it is worth the investment here because actually in the law this is going to be a long war and we want you to be building this these these weapons these these shells because they're going to be absolutely essential and it's not going to lead to the implosion of your business so i just thought that was quite interesting but i'd be interested if dom has any reflections on any of that yeah i think it is 
I mean, the whole business with the Treasury, we just, I think we just need to be a bit careful about trying to put too much emphasis on what, what words have been, what messages we've got, because we just don't know at the moment. There's still two years left to run for this, um, uh, what's, the, what's the phrase I'm looking for, this financial, the four-year plan, whatever the, the government have. So, you know, Ben Wallace yesterday was saying that he's, I can't remember the expression you use, something like the, the winds in the sails or something like that, so we, which was interpreted as fairly positive. Of course, Rishi Sunak and um, and the Chancellor have made very positive comments saying that we'll do, do whatever it takes. So, you know, it all looks good for, for defence budget. But of course, until the ink's dry, we, we, we simply don't know. Um, there does seem to be a growing emphasis amongst the international community now that the, the emphasis needs to shift, if not shift to the industrial side away from just the gifting of munitions and monetary aid, humanitarian help and so on and so forth. But certainly that needs to be a much greater part of the conversation. And within that, that it's not just the here and now, and it's not just the medium term, it's the long term. People are talking about supporting Ukraine after the war. Now, that might be a a, a helpful fudge to not have to talk about NATO membership and EU membership because those are, are absolutely inflammatory topics to discuss. But if you start talking in in hard in contractual terms about building factories in your in your country and so on and so forth, then that, those are those are pretty reasonable security movements, if not guarantees. So I think the industrial side is becoming much more to play. Um, it is all ramped up through the through the politics in in the UK here. As I say, we still got two years left to run before any any major or at least a year before any major decisions are made and two years before we hear hear about them. Um, but yes, the conversation is shifting to the longer term and more to the money and to the the industrial resilience that that's that's really now coming to coming to bear with with how how low stocks certainly are. Thanks, Dom. Thanks, Francis. Dom, can I stay with you? We kept this update just for this section of the pod. Um, we want to talk a little bit about uh, the Russian Aerospace Forces, the Russian, the Russian Air Force. We've had quite a few questions over the past few weeks from listeners about um, its perceived ineffectiveness uh, in the war so far. But I thought a good jumping off, off point to discuss this would be today's intelligence update from uh, the British MOD. Yeah, I mean, and this is the ongoing question about where is the Russian Air Force and why, why hasn't it turned up? Now, so today's Defence Intelligence message um, from, from British MOD said that the Russian Aerospace Forces, which are known as the VKS, they have continued to deploy a similar number of aircraft in support of the war, although they say of the Ukrainian operation, which language I don't particularly care for, um, as they have over the last few months. Now, Russian sortie rates have increased in the last week. Uh, following several weeks of quieter activity, it, it says. But air activity is now roughly in line with the average daily rate seen last summer. However, the, the intelligence report goes on, overall Russian air power continues to significantly underperform in the war, uh, constrained by continued high threat from Ukrainian air defences and dispersed basing, as in they got the aircraft, Ukraine got this aircraft away from the, the bases that were going to be attacked in the first few hours of the war. Um, and it says across Russia, the, the VKS, that is the Russian Aerospace Forces, likely maintains a largely intact fleet of approximately 1,500 crewed military aircraft. Unfortunately, that's C-R-E-W-E-D, not C-R-U-D-E. Um, and despite losing over 130 since the start of the war, um, it's unlikely they are currently preparing for a dramatically expanded air campaign as under the current battlefield circumstances, it would likely suffer unsustainable aircraft losses. OK, end, end of quote there from the Defence Intelligence. Now, what seems to have happened is that in the first hours and couple of days, and I do mean that just the first, you know, it's absolutely vital in the first few hours 
and the first sort of 24, 48 hours of any any war that um, we in the West would say you've got to you've got to get rid of the other the other side's air force to, so that you, to give you freedom of action. You can't do anything on the ground, or rather, no, go back a step. You can only do things on the ground at at high cost and very high risk if you don't have a nice umbrella of owning the sky above you. And Russia didn't achieve that. Now, it might be that they put too much stock in their in their missiles and their air force's ability to knock Ukraine out of the air war in the first few hours. Or it might be that, that Ukraine yeah, kind of knew that this was this was going to come. And certainly in the in the preceding two or three days ahead of the ahead of the war, I think they really did know that an attack was coming. So they dispersed their bases. They they got their aircraft out of the way. So a lot of the missiles that, that hit were hitting dummy positions and empty positions. Um, so the, the Ukrainian Air Force is still there and it's had an effect. It hasn't had um, a massive effect against the Russian Air Force, but it hasn't had to. It's, it's, it's there. Part of what it can do is be there as a threat. And consequently, the Russian Air Force has, has not ventured over Ukrainian territory that is not under temporary occupation by Russian forces. So very rarely do the big bombers, in fact, the big bombers don't really leave Ukrainian, uh, Belarusian or Russian airspace or the Black Sea. They do not fly over Ukrainian held airspace um, or Ukraine at all, the big bombers. The Russian Air Force rarely venture forward of their own of their own front lines. So it means that all the attacks that they're able to put together on the ground just are just are, are extremely vulnerable from from above. Now, having said that, Ukraine hasn't um, got a massive uh, what's called close air support capability. That's the the aircraft that are that are directly supporting ground operations. So they've not been able to knit that together, and hence hence there is a bit of stalemate, as we can see in the Donbass. But um, I was speaking yesterday to Douglas Barry, who's a senior fellow for military aerospace at the International Institute for Strategic Studies, and he said that Russian air capability has has been degraded, but not uniformly across the board, and said Russian air is pretty much intact, with a couple of exceptions, and the loss rates are not horrific. Um, now he was talking. He then went on to talk about um, missiles, particularly land attack cruise missiles, and said that they had probably they're very reliant on on microprocessors from the from the West and from Taiwan, but they probably stocked up on those kind of those natures of ammunition and all the parts they need to keep those lines going before the war. Because obviously they knew what they were going to do. They probably prepared for that in advance. So. Douglas Barry was saying the suspicion is that Russia probably built up a considerable stock, um, but they're almost certainly burning through them quicker than they'd like. So all in all, it means that neither side has, has a particular advantage in the air. And if you don't have an advantage in the air, then it makes operating on the ground that much harder. It's all got to work together to have real military effects. And I think that's why we've seen things grinding to a halt um, or a relative halt in the in the Donbass. That's part of the reason, of course, why and the big ask at the moment from Ukraine is for is for air power from for, for fighter jets, and we've we've rehearsed those arguments many many times. We'll come back to those, I'm sure. But I think that lack of an air and that lack of one side dominating the air has really meant that that, that ground operations are extremely risky and can come at high cost. And the default setting is that nobody really goes anywhere because it, it is it is such a um, uh, such a risk. Well, thanks very much for that, Dom. Um, just got one eye on the clock actually today. So, Francis, you've got a few more um, diplomatic and political updates for us. Do you want to talk us through them just quite quickly and we can get on to the, the final section? 
Sure. Well, we've covered a lot of military things today, but there is a few interesting things also happening in the political space. I'll start with Belarus, which, of course, has been a focus of ours now for for several days. Um, So President Alexander Lukashenko has said that Belarus would join the offensive in Ukraine, but only if attacked first by Kyiv's army. And I'll read the quote directly. I'm ready to fight together with the Russians from the territory of Belarus in one case only. If so much as one soldier from Ukraine comes to our territory with a gun to kill my people. And he said this in what is quite a rare press conference with foreign journalists in Minsk. And he said also this applies to our other neighbours. If they commit an aggression against Belarus, our response will be the most cruel, the most cruel. Now, of course, Belarus still hosts an undeclared number of Russian troops, um, but Yukosenko has promised not to send his forces, which are estimated of around 60 to 70,000, over the southern border of Ukraine. But of course, his territory was utilised for the invasion back in February last year. How seriously should we take these remarks? Well, I think in the one sense it is reassuring that he is not throwing all of his weight clearly behind Putin. But I think that it's important to urge caution here that the wording is such that it would be very easy for some kind of Ukrainian operation to be faked uh, by Russia, by Belarus, in order to to pass these tests, as it were, um, to justify being involved in an invasion from Belarus. So, um, I think it's more interesting the fact that he's talking about this at all than actually us saying, well, this is a great sign that, you know, he's not going to be committing troops to to Ukraine. Uh, So that's the reason that I mentioned that. In other diplomatic news, the Israeli foreign minister, Eli Cohen, is set to meet Vladimir Zelensky today. It will be the first visit since the Russian invasion last year. The foreign ministry have said in a statement, we're here on an important visit of solidarity with the Ukrainian nation, which has certainly endured a very hard time in the past year. We don't know what they're going to be discussing, but I think we can assume that it will be about uh, how to put increasing pressure on Russia to end the war. But as I've talked about in the past, there are additional complexities with regard to Israel and this war, which I won't repeat because I've gone over them in detail previously. But I think that this will be seen as a positive sign by Ukraine, that they are making some positive steps in winning around the Israelis, which include, of course, could be important for some of the dialogues with Russia on certain issues as well. Just a couple of other stories that caught my eye this morning. So we're hearing from Germany that they that some 1.1 million people have arrived in the country from Ukraine in 2022, which exceeds the influx of migrants from the Middle East around 2015. These are official statistics. So two thirds of the immigrants from Ukraine arrived in the first three months after Russia's invasion between March and May of last year. This, of course, these statistics have been released on just prior to the anniversary next week. And I think it is interesting and worthy of comment this because I've been following this issue for a while and how this is the the issue of of, um, Ukrainian refugees has been covered in, in the foreign press. And of course, broadly speaking, it's been really incredible seeing the response from the publics in those countries of people being incredibly supportive towards Ukrainian refugees, because it is very, very challenging, um, you know, having somebody in your home you don't know how long they're going to be there for it's a, it's a stressful thing for everybody including of course and particularly for the refugees who had to leave their homeland so um but 
what is I think it has to be addressed here and has to be discussed is there are anxieties that are brewing beneath the surface and one sees already coverage in Germany of certain politicians expressing concern about the lack of space for Ukrainian refugees I mean these are very very high numbers listeners may remember that when there was that influx of Middle Eastern refugees it had a very destabilizing influence on German domestic politics and you know it just inevitably it's very very easy to to point to this as an issue and when people are suffering in terms of cost of rent, cost of um, accommodation, etc. People get upset if they feel that they are sometimes being put um, beneath people from another country. It may not sound very nice to put it in that way, but that is a political reality. Um, and so, as I say, there are politicians in Germany who are expressing concern about the lack of space. They're causing for, calling for a greater redistribution of refugees throughout the EU. There's also a challenge of integrating refugees into uh, Poland and the Czech Republic, they are, they are hosting very, very high numbers of refugees compared to the local population size, which of course means that there are um, calls for programmes to be slashed from certain uh, politicians in those countries, uh, anger around um, refugees that are reliant on benefits, for instance. I understand that in the Czech Republic there have been campaigns underway now to emphasise that refugees are not stealing jobs from local people. Now, you wouldn't have those kind of campaigns whereas they're not politi- considerable anxiety amongst politicians. So I, I just mention this because there is always a danger when you're faced with a long-term situation of like this with these kind of numbers of it having, as I say, a destabilising influence on the domestic politics of these countries we haven't seen it yet but this is going to be i think a much longer war than many people initially thought and that does have political consequences particularly when there is a particularly febrile economic environment in europe as of course there has been partially triggered by the war and partially triggered of course by the uh, impact of the pandemic and when people are suffering economically they are less inclined perhaps to look as favorably on uh, on the idea of, of, of support people from abroad. So not a pleasant subject to discuss, but one that is important and is clearly on the political radar of politicians across Europe at the moment. But just to end in the diplomatic segment on a, on a slightly lighter story, we were talking about, of course, uh, Zelensky's visit uh, to Britain. And at the time, it came to us as a surprise that Zelensky then went on to Paris. And we asked ourselves whether that was because it was maybe a surprise to the French government themselves that we that we weren't aware that it was going to be happen and so it's proved if a report from Politico is to be uh, believed so they've said that uh, President Macron invited Zelensky to Paris only after seeing the speech in Westminster Hall which of course we were reporting at the time originally he'd planned to go on a theatre visit with to, to with his wife that evening we understand but then he watched the conference and according to uh, one of his aides who's spoken to Politico he then realised that he needed to rush out an invitation and arrange for a late night visit to Paris. So it just underlines, doesn't it, the the importance that politicians give to publicly supporting Ukraine, but also some of the complexities of not wanting certain countries to be seen as leading the charge, as it were, when perhaps they feel that they want to be getting some of the international and domestic respect for, for, for playing these roles. So uh, I suppose a good problem for Zelensky to have, to have all of these leaders who want to be hosting him. But I thought an interesting story on which to end the diplomatic segment. Absolutely. Thank you very much for that, Francis. Francis, can I stay with you um, just to talk through, I think, well, it's, it's, it's a huge story, something you've been, I think, very good on bringing us back to time and time again uh, during this podcast. Um, a 
a report has come out, um, US-backed report by Yale, which says that Russia has held at least 6,000 Ukrainian children, likely many more, in sites in Russian-held Crimea and Russia itself. The primary purpose of this appears to be political re-education. Uh, it's an astonishing report. I know you, me and you have been reading it this morning. Um, can you talk us through um, the, the most important bits that you read? Yes, well, as you say, we are still reading through it as we speak, because it is a long report and a shocking one. And as you say, we've been sensitive to this for a while. I think this is one of the first major reports into this subject that goes into the kind of detail that will be required in the future for bringing people to justice. And I'll come to that in a second. As you say, the top line is that this that, that Russia has held at least 6,000 Ukrainian children, likely many more, the report says, in sites in Russian-held Crimea and Russia, whose primary purpose seems to be this political re-education that you refer to. It's talking about there being 43 facilities in this network. So they've identified pre-existing summer camps in Russia-occupied Crimea. They say that among these camps, there are 12 clustered around the Black Sea, seven in Crimea, and 10 are clustered around the cities of Moscow and um that lists sort of several other um, cities. It says 11 of the camps are located over 500 miles from Ukraine's border, including two camps in Siberia and one in Russia's far east. The exact number of the facilities is likely significantly higher, and that's a direct quote from the report, than the 43 that they have identified. Now, as I say, this, this, this network stretches all the way from Crimea to Russia's eastern coast. I mean, this is approximately 3,900 miles from Ukraine that some of these children are supposedly been been taken to and in terms of the re-education aspects of this it seems that these children are are taken and then undergo a sort of cultural patriotic and military style education it says that multiple camps endorsed by the russian federation are advertised as integration programs with the apparent goal of integrating children from ukraine into the government's vision of national culture history and society Some of these children from at least two of the camps have been placed with foster families in Russia. And it goes into quite a lot of detail in describing who they are and the experiences that they have undergone. It talks about how the consent is collected under duress and is routinely violated. So saying that the means in which this is justified by the Russian state are not justified in international law. It says that parents allege that there are specific elements of the consent they gave that were then violated, such as the term of stay and procedures for reuniting with their children. Other parents refused to allow their children to go to the camps but were ignored by camp organisers who enrolled the children in the camps regardless. In many cases, the ability of parents to provide meaningful consent may be considered doubtful as the conditions of war and implicit threat from occupying forces represent conditions of duress. We understand also that children's returns from at least four of the camps have been suspended. So initially the plan was that these children would be re-educated and then sent back to their parents, but it would appear that that has not been happening. And so parents have not been able to see their children, as I say, and their step, their whereabouts in many cases are unknown. But the most interesting, I think, element of this, which we've not been able to talk about in detail until now, is the manner in which it says that the whole of Russia's government are implicated in this, from the lowest level to the hut to the very top. So it says that this is a centrally coordinated policy from the Russian government and involves every level of that government. The report identifies 
maybe a, a dozen federal, regional and local figures who are said to have been directly implicated in this operation and the coordination of it. At least 12 of these individuals are not yet on international sanction lists at the time of the report. And I was very struck by the remarks by Nathaniel Raymond, who was one of the researchers in a briefing yesterday. And he said that the what is documented in this report is a clear violation of the Fourth Geneva Convention. And he says that there are all they are looking at individuals who may be responsible for war crimes and for atrocities inside of Ukraine. And just because we have not sanctioned an individual to date says nothing about any future action that may well be taken. So this is all playing into a much wider conversation, which, of course, we've been talking about now for, for many weeks about how to bring these people to justice and the means of acquiring the evidence in order to do so. And I think this is one of the biggest steps that we have seen so far in that evidence being collated in a methodical and legally watertight way that will enable there to be prosecutions further down the road, whether the, that be in The Hague or in other uh, tribunals. Now, I should say that Russia's embassy in Washington responding to the report have uh, denied many aspects of it, but they've said that they do accept that children were forced to flee Ukraine. And I'll read the quote from them. We do our best to keep underage people in families and in cases of absence or death of parents and relatives to transfer orphans under guardianship. So there is an acknowledgement that this is going on. But of course, the detail and the depth of what is going on, which, as I say, is said to break international law, has is effectively denied by the Russian embassy. And just to conclude, the State Department have also said that they're looking at individuals who may be responsible for these war crimes and that they will want to be uh, sanctioning uh, individuals concerned. So, uh, 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 I mean, a, a heart wrenching report, David, to be frank, and I would recommend that listeners read it because it is quite extraordinary. And one that I think we'll be talking about and referencing for a very long time indeed. Absolutely. Well, thank you very much, Francis, for, for that summary. We can probably put it in the show notes or something for people to read if, if you would like. It's, it is an appalling read, frankly. Um, and uh, just to echo, Francis, what you said there, one of the, one of the most important aspects of it, uh, away from the abuse of the children themselves, would be this, this, this point that all levels of Russia, Russia's government are involved from federal, regional, local figures um, operating together and politically justifying this. I think that's that's a very important point to hang on to, I think, and, th- and think about over the next few weeks and, and months. So thank you very much, Francis, for that summary. Um, we have a slightly shorter episode um, or programme today live. So Dom and Francis, can I just ask for your final thoughts, please? Dom, I know you've been uh, chatting to some of the listeners. Um, so why don't you share s- some of the things they've been telling you? Yeah, well, it was it was in response to my plea earlier on for for first hand account knowledge from the ground of uh, in Ukraine about this power situation. Um, as I said, the the authorities are saying that they are uh, there were no major dis- no major disruption to power supplies last night from the strikes, and that they're getting better at keeping the power going. I was just asking if that's what the lived experience is, and it turns out that I mean, okay, straw poll of just a few people who's messaged me in the last half an hour but yes that is that seems to be the case and thank you thank you very much for everyone who has messaged me in, uh, in between um yeah i mean to, to various degrees depending where you are in the country and what electricity system you are on but yes it seems as if people have gone from uh, being messaged on telegram and told when the planned outages were going to occur to a more steady state of normal electricity. So it sounds as if it is getting better. Please do continue to, to message us from Ukraine if, and let us know your experiences. But it, it sounds as if that is 
um, that it is a, a, a more manageable situation and that even when there are necessity or it's necessary to put in these power outages that the system is in place to let people know when it's going to happen well in advance so you can have some sort of measure of being able to plan your life but i was also told by one of the one of the listeners who got in touch with me that that actually many places now government um uh, departments and shops and so on and so forth businesses have got their own generators so that, to get over these power these power issues and we know a lot of generators have been flowing in from external supporters over the last few months but a really interesting um, uh, feedback thank you so much and please do continue to, to let us know what the experience is from where you are thanks Tom. Tom have you heard anything more about your being sanctioned or is that just something that's just still hanging in the air no but then I haven't planned this summer's holiday yet to um you know to the dasher uh i do need to go and give it a paint so i will have to get out there but um no no heard nothing more i'll i will let you know thanks tom uh, and to finish francis Sterling. thanks david well definitely my final thought today will be on the reporting to children which as i say is sobering reading indeed and i'll be thinking about that not just today but also for the coming days because there's a lot of things i want to pick out of it and analyze in more detail but just for today's, I want to return to the question I was discussing earlier around Western weapons in Ukraine. It does reinforce the argument, I think, that if the West had properly armed Ukraine with the weapons it now has in those early months of the war, then the Russians may well have been decisively beaten before they had any chance of regrouping. But of course, in saying that, I do wonder too whether that's a question we can actually legitimately ask, because if there had been those weapons for prior to the war, or if there was an understanding that those weapons would be received by Ukraine in the event of an invasion, would Russia have invaded in the first place? And that sets us up nicely for what I hope will be one of the subjects we will cover in our video version of the podcast for the anniversary of the invasion next week, which is how could this war have been prevented and what mistakes were made that got us into this position? I know this is of an enormous interest to listeners. This has been a theme of many, many of the questions that we've received from you in response to our request last week so thank you all very much for submitting them and we'll do as best our best to cover as many of them as we can in recent weeks we've paid close attention to Zelensky's attempts to tackle corruption russian and chinese disinformation and the future of ukrainian democracy to explore all of these topics, I spoke to Ben Graham-Jones, an election expert specialising in emerging threats to electoral integrity. He works with a range of organisations on both sides of the Atlantic and has observed or provided support to 30-plus elections right across the globe, often looking at issues around information manipulation. He's also spent extensive time in Ukraine. This is our conversation. Thanks very much for your time this afternoon, Ben. Can you just, first of all, tell us about yourself and the work that you do? So my name is Ben Graham-Jones. I specialise in analysing emerging threats to election integrity. I've advised a range of organisations on both sides of the Atlantic and have observed and provided support to more than 30 elections right across the globe. Thank you. And as part of your work, you've spent a lot of time in Ukraine following the 2014 takeover of Crimea, but also prior to the invasion of February last year. What can you tell us about your experience there? I mean, one of the things that has really struck me thinking back to the time that I've spent in Ukraine was just how much work and, and effort primarily by Ukrainians went in to building those democratic institutions. I think there's been a rather cheap attempt by, often by pro-Russian disinformation producers to paint 
pre-war Ukraine as sort of a country which you lacked and didn't have anything when it came to, to democratic institutions and democratic legitimacy. But I remember meeting so many individuals, whether it was the candidate who was walking through a, a super windy high street right with the wind was blowing everywhere and he was trying to deliver these leaflets that he printed off himself door to door and then gave a, you know, a speech in the middle of the road to sort of seven people and a, a few dogs. And you thought, well, really, that's, that's the essence of democracy, you know? And then you, know, you would go to these sort of media houses as part of my work. You're interviewing different people involved in, within the different elections there. And often these would be very large sort of warehouse type spaces that were built in the Soviet era, you know, decades old. And you would have one or two local journalists working in these enormous oversized buildings where, you know, clearly, you know, one or two of them would have could have remembered the time when this building would have been packed full of journalists doing their work and now there was just one or two people left trying to promote fact-based information to their, their local communities but you know doing their work diligently as well so you know I'm not, I'm not saying that yeah of course there was there were there was and remain challenges but I remember so many stories like that and I guess the moment will arrive once the war in Ukraine comes to an end where the task will then be to stand on the shoulders of the progress that was made of the investment that was made by so many Ukrainians and by international partners to nurture those institutions and the task will then be how can that progress be taken forward to build the democracy that will follow. And which parts of Ukraine specifically were you in in your time there? I've served in quite quite a few different places across Ukraine, but one memory which really sticks with me was in in Dnipro City, and you, know, you recall the, the apartment building that, that was destroyed just a few weeks ago. And I remember you know, texting someone I know who, who's, who's still there. I asked him, I said, "Well, your whereabouts exactly was it that, that this happened?" And he sent me a photograph of um, you know, of myself uh, and, and him in, in, a, in a garden there. And we were sort of feeding the ducks, and he sort of described to me where the apartment was in relation to this beautiful you know, photograph, uh, which I remember, and, and it sort of really hammered home to me. You know, so and so number of people you know, lost their lives tragically, or so and so number of people were injured. But it's it's really memories like that that reaffirmed to me and remind me just of the human cost of the war on Ukraine that, that, that continues to be felt you know, day in, day out. Before we turn to just discussing the theme of Zelensky tackling Ukrainian corruption, which I know is something you're, you're interested in following closely, on a sort of day-to-day basis, what kind of work do you do as part of being an election expert and an election observer? A lot of the work that, that I do orients around looking at different disinformation campaigns that emerge globally. For a lot of the, the Russian-based disinformation, you know, we read a lot about the, the physical war, but I, I'm not sure that everybody appreciates the scale of the information war. And really, this is something of, of global significance, because Ukraine itself has become very effective at combating a lot of this, you know, the Ukrainian model of counter-disinformation, which is sort of your strategic vision from the presidency, combined with emotion-based counter-disinformation, Right, humor, memes, all these sort of you know, this sort of bottom-up attempt by all of these social media influencers and people who can penetrate communities that might not be reached by traditional counter disinformation approaches has lessons for all of us. So I spend a lot of my time looking at looking at this sort of thing, also looking at uh, disinformation and counter disinformation in, in other contexts, and really on a lot of the elections that I, that I work on, that I serve in, you're often speaking to people whose point of reference is, you know, five years ago or seven years ago. They look back to when the previous election was. And really, from my perspective, working on many, many elections every year, you tend to see similar sorts of patterns emerge. And that means that more effective measures can be taken to properly safeguard the democratic processes that I work on. 
Were you surprised, Ben, by the effectiveness of the Ukrainian combating the disinformation campaigns of Russia following the invasion? Not really, Francis. It's nothing new for Ukraine. Uh, sadly, this has been a, a long-held story. There's been decades-long history in terms of the you know, disinformation that sought to divide Ukraine from Poland, for example, and, and you know, really um, you know, worse than that you know, bilateral relationship. So really, Ukraine is not facing these challenges for the first time, but of course it, it is facing them in a more intense way. And I think that one of the things that will follow from this is that when we think about the Ukrainian elections that will follow and that will come in the future, you know, Ukraine sort of paradoxically will be better prepared than ever to actually protect itself against one of the most fundamental threats to the democratic process nowadays, which are these coordinated foreign attempts to manipulate information and in doing so affect other people's elections. And so Ukraine will have built and and refined those tools that they already had in place. I think it's incumbent on, on all of us in democratic societies to look at what's happening in Ukraine, to look at what's happening in Taiwan and learn the lessons because one of the things that we've seen is that these you know whole society approaches to the formulation of disinformation where you know China or Russia will put together huge resources behind these efforts need to be met with whole society responses to disinformation and that means the media that means the education system that means community leaders that means influencers all coming together and saying this is the threat let's understand the threat and now let's let's pre-bunk and let's respond And it's also, of course, about tackling corruption. And I know that's something that you've focused a lot on in your time as an election expert. Why do you think that President Zelensky seems to be choosing now to move against the oligarchs? I think that's a great question, Francis. And I think that one of the things that we have seen is that Zelensky's power base has has shifted. I guess the dependencies on Zelensky's power has, has shifted somewhat. So if you go back to Zelensky's political power, there's a very, a very clear connection with, with, with Kolmoski and the sort of the financing and the airtime that was given to Zelensky to allow him to have the platform that he had that he then used to, to accrue the political power that he secured. But now with Zelensky becoming this sort of global superstar for the, for the global democratic community, I think that's given him a bit more space to be able to start thinking not just about the sort of the immediacy of the decisions he has to make, but to think about the peace that must be won afterwards uh, and think not just about you know, winning the war, but about winning the peace. You know, the moment will come in, in good time for President Zelensky and for those around him. I guess it's a moment we might call an Atlee moment. Well, there will be an opportunity to really think, I think, in detail about what type of Ukraine will follow, what type of aspirations and will come into the picture uh, at that moment of time. And I think this has been a really clear statement from the Ukrainian presidency that that future um, needs to be one which, which shifts away some of the problems with corruption that you know, Ukraine has experienced in the past and in doing so harnesses in some ways the flexibility of a time of warfare to really you radically reform the political structure of a country in a way which establishes you know, anti-corruption at its heart and democratic values at its heart. And, and thanks you know, to, the, to the devastating experiences, of course, of the last year, I think that that's, um, that's a vision which certainly when I speak to Ukrainian friends is, is widely shared. And I, I take from what you're saying there that you're a huge optimist about the future of Ukrainian democracy and Ukrainian elections. Just wondering if you wanted to, to comment on that, what you think that future will, will look like? So first of all, on the war itself, I think that the bet that Putin was making was that 
you know, knowing that the consequences of this illegal war on Ukraine would be increased energy prices in Western countries, that, that, that he thought that that would lead Western countries to not respond perhaps as robustly as we have in support of Ukraine. And that hasn't happened. One of the things that we've seen is that, you know, we've, we were sort of we're going through that process and, and that will, will in time come to an end. Your energy diversification and your efforts to open up supply in other regions of the world will, um, uh, you know, th- this is now starting to have its effect. And so we've been through that. And yet Western support is still just as strong. And so that changes the question. The question then becomes not will Ukraine win this war, but when will Ukraine win this war? Because we've shown that our support won't go anywhere. And so you bet your bottom dollar that, um, or bet your bottom pound that the, the, you know, the UK and, and the United States, at the end of the day, have you know, more resources than Russia has to put into this. So I think that allows space for starting to think about you know, the Ukraine that emerges afterwards. Now, when it comes to the, the future of Ukrainian elections, there's a story that a friend of mine, Nick Cheeseman, is, is fond of, of telling about the 2019 elections in Ukraine, where um, you know, Yulia Tymoshenko is, a, is a sort of one of the very big figures in Ukrainian politics was running was on the ballot paper but also on the ballot paper was a, another person by the name of YV Tymoshenko which is her initials now this this was like you know, basically some random guy who they'd found to stick on the ballot paper to confuse the voters so they'd be faced with this ballot paper uh, not knowing so that you, so that you know, Tymoshenko's supporters wouldn't know uh, who to pick it was what you know, what you call a, like an imposter candidate so Clearly, there were some issues. These have all been, all been well documented, and that really shows the scale of the opportunity that's here for your Ukrainian advocates of democracy to build a future which doesn't have these sorts of challenges. And I think there's, there's, you know, there is reason for optimism. There's a long way to go. We need to not let complacency come into the picture at, at any moment. You know, this could be a really long, a really long journey. Widening our canvas then, you've visited over 80 countries and have seen firsthand the manner in which... Russia has worked to win around parts of the Middle East, Africa, South America, to their point of view on all manner of, of issues. How do they do this? How did they do this? And how successful would you say that it has been in some of those places? Sure. So, so I'd say it's, it's been a mixed picture. The success of Russian and pro-Russian information operations is as much about our failures as it is about their success. And I think there's a recognition within the social media community, within the elections community, that we've been slow off the mark, that we weren't prepared, we weren't looking 10 years forward, 20 years forward. And there's a risk that faced with all the crises we're faced with right now, that we'll do the same thing again. And we'll be so focused on the urgency of responding to the current issues that we're not looking at, okay, what disinformation types are going to be facing us in The curse of democracy. (laughs) Precisely, yeah, precisely. That's exactly right. So that's a risk, but it's it's been a mixed picture. Some of the trends that we are seeing, I mean, got a bit of a shift which is taking place at the moment, where often quite small and, and niche platforms are being used to spread like pro-Russian disinformation in a way you know these platforms will often not have content moderation might appeal to a much more niche audience and so we need to be making sure that you know within the information operations community that we understand where this disinformation is being targeted where it's being focused on because fundamentally these are attempts and this isn't a freedom of speech question this is a question about trying to subvert the democratic process so we need to make sure that we are on top of an, an understanding that and I can, I can give you some some examples right with the way in which some of these things manifest. One of the things that we, we've seen a fair bit of is imposter news sites. So you might see a link on Facebook or on Twitter, and then you click on that link, and 
it might show an article. Let's use the Telegraph for an example, right? It might redirect to a, an article that maybe it looks exactly like the Telegraph website. And then you look at the URL bar, right, the www. And it might say, you know, telegraph.com rather than telegraph.com. And it's a completely fake article and it looks completely legitimate. And if you click on any of the links around it, it might redirect you to, you know, Telegraph Sport or, or other parts of the site. This is something that a lot of media outlets are finding is that they are being impersonated. And there'll be a, like a, a story which actually has never been written by that piece. But people by just clicking on that link might be redirected. Another challenge we, we really have is with video-based disinformation. This is going to get much worse. Okay, the technologies that are out there are, are pretty rough at the moment, but these are, are only going to get more refined and attempts are going to get more sophisticated. So if you can imagine a situation where you have an election and the day after, the head of the election commission in w- whatever country it might be in will announce the results. And at that very moment, there will be videos created with that individual announcing a completely different set of results. And it looks like that person is saying it and it is their voice and it's being shared right across you know, WhatsApp or private messaging networks to tens of thousands of angry citizens. These are the sort of challenges we're going to be facing. And as a, a global community of democratic states, we need to be thinking about how to make sure that we all understand what these threats are, because it's only by understanding them that we're going to be able to respond to them. Well, we'll get on how to do that in a moment. But I just wondered, first of all, where what your reflections were about China, because, of course, they're trying to do the same. We know that, particularly in Africa, but, of course, are far less experienced than, than Russia is in these kind of operations. How have you seen China flex its muscle in the places that you've been? Sure. So this is one of the most worrying trends, I'd say. The first thing to remember is that this is a categorically different game. China's GDP is eight times that of Russia. And if China makes these sort of global information operations as central to their foreign policy, as Russia has, we're going to be in for a rough ride. So we need to be making sure that those of us uh, working within democratic states are taking the steps to prepare for this. Now, historically, Chinese disinformation and information operations has largely been focused on domestic audience and on the Chinese diaspora communities. But I think we're starting to see a bit of a shift in that, and I think that that's really worrying. So a couple of examples. So one of the things that we see is that some of the connections between how the Communist Party finances these diaspora Chinese language publications, and quite often they'll run these expensive ads. You've got whole content repositories whereby they'll offer articles at very cheap prices or for free to some of these publications in order that they they promote a sort of pro-CCP narrative. So this is really worrying, and we need to be mapping these organizations because they're operating in our own societies and making sure we understand how that how that's working because actually there are plenty of Chinese language publications which are independent which are trying to do a great job often people who've moved to our societies because they agree more with the values of a democratic society than they do on the, than the government they've they fled so you know, we need to be making sure that these publications have got the support that they need to disseminate in the Russian language in the Chinese language information which is fact-based and can provide an independent perspective these operations I think that it's also incredibly important that we as a society within the UK and more widely, ensure that we all recognise this is a shared responsibility. If you're listening to this and and you know that, you know, you've got a relative who uses social media and is not aware of of video-based disinformation, is not aware that you can make a video of someone saying something that they've never said, we can all take steps to share that information and make sure they understand. And and then we can better protect our societies from the attempts which already exist, but the UK hasn't had its big 
foreign interference moment yet. You know, that will that will come in good time. I don't, I don't doubt it. There will be efforts, which uh, I'm sure will continue over the coming years to, to do that. And we need to be making sure that we're resilient collectively. I think we're coming close to the end of our time together, Ben. It's been really fascinating hearing your perspective on all of these issues. Just wonder, again, widening out yet further... What do you see as the next great threat? I mean, we've obviously seen this uh, horrific act in in Ukraine with the invasion by Putin. There's a lot of conversations about Taiwan. But I'm wondering, as somebody who, you you know, you've got, you're always looking all around the world. Where should we be looking that perhaps we're not looking at the moment? So I think the biggest threat that we face is that people will lose trust in fact-based information. This is what we call the liar's dividend. Okay, if enough disinformation gets spread people just end up not trusting anything. And that's really worrying. You know, so you end up with your respected, your broadsheets, your, the Telegraph or the, the Times or the Guardian or you, whatever it might be, right? They might have different political stances, but you know that a different set of processes goes into producing that information than some website that you click on uh, on Facebook and no one's ever heard of it, but hey, it, it produces content that aligns with your psychological profile and which reinforces your pre-existing biases and is not based on facts. So... When we are faced with the challenges that we, we are faced with, we need to find a way to re-establish trust. Fundamentally, we see this in declining numbers of younger people going out to vote. We see this in the fact that the, the end of the Second World War, which I think brought a re- reaffirmation of democratic values in our societies, is now, you know, uh, there's no generational memory anymore of, of this. So there needs to be a reaffirmation, an understanding of what it means to be a citizen in the democratic world. But that also needs to then be backed with, with policy. And I'll give you an example of that. There are you know, hundreds of journalists in the African continent who go to China every year, young journalists who get trained, they're identified as potential editors of the future, and they go on programs from between three months to three years, fully funded, and then come back off and get funding for subsequent ventures in their home countries. Uh, and in that process, of course, many of these individuals lose their faith in a sort of watchdog approach to journalism. But we need to be asking, you know, what's the alternative to that? Many people would much rather go on a a liberal democratic alternative um, programme, but is that being provided? So we need to be thinking about re-establishing trust in democracy, not just here at home, but also globally. And and in the end of the day, that will be our best defence against the sorts of information warfare that Russia has conducted in Ukraine and elsewhere, and that other countries will continue to levy over the coming years and decades. Well, thank you very much, Ben. Lots of food for thought there. And I'm sure there will be many listeners who will write in uh, with their reflections on what you've said. We always try and ask our guests one final question, which is, is there anything that you've not talked about today that you would like to? Or is there anything perhaps that's on your radar that should be on ours that isn't? Absolutely. the, The underlying message, I think, that I want to communicate as someone who sees the way in which elections play out right across the world, but also sees the different ways in which the hostile actors try to manipulate information and manipulate our opinions, is this. We can all take responsibility here. We all have a role to play. You know, it's on us to, to get ourselves educated about what the next generation of disinformation is going to look like. If you're a teacher, okay, make sure your pupils understand what's, what's, what's coming out here. If you're a journalist, you know, make sure that you know, your readers and the same way your listeners, as you're doing here, Francis, uh, understand um, what these disinformation types are. But especially when you've got an election on the horizon, you know, make sure we're all as prepared as we can be um, to check before we share, to verify facts before we pass them on, understand just how sophisticated some of these challenges are. 
pretty soon you were going to be in a situation and there's already this technology it already exists but it will become more refined and more accessible over the coming months and years where you can say in a, into a microphone create video of your ex-businessman giving a brown bag to this candidate uh, you know move guy on the left uh, a little bit more to the right create somber lighting uh, and, and this will create a video Right. And, and then you can say, you know, circulate this. That's how low the bar will be for the creation of complex disinformation. But if you don't even know that, then you're not going to be able to be sceptical when exposed to it. So let's all take it upon ourselves within our families, within our communities to respond to the efforts made by um, made by Russia in Ukraine and more widely, but also made by other hostile actors um, by educating ourselves and doing what we can to build a more resilient society against disinformation. One more thought on that, Francis, and I want to really you know, underscore, I was watching an interview with the former commander of US forces in, in Europe and a, a, you know, a great military expert, Ben Hodges, this week, who, who mentioned, um, he said, I quote, the UK's very forward-leaning approach has helped pull us all along. And he was talking in a military sense, but actually I, I think that's a mantle we also need to embrace um, in the information space. And so you know, fundamentally, the sorts of um, attempts to... Um, subvert democratic processes through disinformation, they don't necessarily, they're not necessarily nationally demarcated, right? Information flows across borders. We see disinformation wholesale translated from one language to another, shared across networks. And so that means we need to make sure we are coordinating with our international partners. I really commend um, the announcement uh, last week, um, actually, this was at EU level in coordination with international partners of the creation of... um, of a centre to coordinate uh, the, the international responses uh, around um, information operations. And th- these are the sorts of issues that go beyond any you know, bilateral you know, tensions or relationships that we might have with other democratic countries. This is, fun- this is existential. Um, so it's right and proper that we coordinate when it comes to this. You know, we need to take another look, I think, at Five Eyes Plus, which is, you know, of course, a fantastic intelligence-sharing community um, and, and also, um, I think, has its role to play when it comes to countering um, you know, disinformation put out by autocratic states. Uh, so really, this is about coordination within our societies, but also globally, internationally, thinking about how we work together with like-minded partners uh, to safeguard our democratic processes. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine the latest. Or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released, do refer to podcast apps. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. Crane the Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear. And today on Twitter, Rachel Duffy. 
Just give me one. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.